Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. Today, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Carlin, who runs a private medical practice for global families. Dr. Carlin, welcome to our podcast. And please, Diana, chime in and say a hello to our listeners. Hello, everybody. Hello, Dr. Carlin, and welcome. Hi, Diana. Hi, Arden. How are you guys doing? Great. We are fantastic. Well, I thought I would open up with just a very basic question and ask, you know, Dr. Carlin, it's been a pleasure to collaborate with you on cases, and I'd love for you to give the listeners a sense of your practice and the type of work you do with families. Sure, sure. So um, full credentials are Dan Carlin, MD. I'm a medical doctor boarded in emergency medicine. Um, for the last 22 years, I've been running a, a fairly unique medical practice. Um, I was an early adopter of telemedicine. And I did that to basically take care of our clients, which were high net worth families uh, and global corporations. And what they really wanted was an attentive physician team available 24 hours a day wherever they were. So these were these were people and companies in many cases that were early adopters of, you know, connectivity, you know, with phones and internet and all of these things. Um, and we were the we were at the other end of the line. Now. I'll tell you quite honestly, 22 years ago, we were an emergency room, um, and that was really my background. Uh, and I, in, the, in the ensuing 20 years, everyone is now 20 years older. And well, we've, uh, we've decided to basically keep the promise to our patients. So we've developed now, obviously, well beyond emergency medicine now into um, almost like a, a very sophisticated family practice. So we have family practitioners on staff, an internal medicine physician on staff, a bunch of nurse practitioners. So we're doing a lot more of um, really basic primary care. Um, so we've started in one place. Now we're in a much, much bigger place. But it's really been around filling a void in our patients' lives. You know, our promise 20 years ago was to take care of them no matter what. Um, and now, like I said, we're all a, a considerably older and we're dealing and with no matter like, what is happening. No matter what is happening, exactly. Yes, that that yes. was the promise. So you're older now, so we're seeing a lot of the diseases of aging. You know, atherosclerosis, neurologic disease, dementia, Parkinsonism. Um, along the way, of course, you're now a family practice in many ways. So we're dealing with a lot of substance abuse, behavioral disorders. We also have a number of um, young moms that are either about to become mothers or the mother for the second or third time. So now we have a number of infants born into the practice. So it's it's now almost uh, the very beginning of life all the way to the very end of life. And of course, our focus is to now to make sure the end of that life is as far into the future as possible by doing a great job with the basics in prevention and primary care. Oh, that's great. It must be so rewarding to see people through that length of time and to see families, you know, multi-generational families who can benefit from your services. I think that's fantastic. Uh, my dad was a country doctor in the Berkshires when I was a kid. And um, 
I look at his practice that I knew as a child and the one I'm running now, and they're really not that dissimilar. There's, you really get to know people, literally in some cases decades go by together. Um, there's an intimacy there, a responsibility there, an accountability, I think. And uh, no, I do. I mean, thank you for saying that. We, uh, it's very rewarding work. It is particularly unusual in this age of clinics. Even I live in rural Vermont, and even family practices are disappearing, and they became community centers of health. And so the continuity of care just isn't there like what you're describing. Uh, that's quite true. I'm, I'm sorry to report that that's true, but it, it is. I think that's one of the biggest one of the biggest gaps we fill these days is around continuity and accountability. Um, the continuity has become quite fractured and fragmented. People have a very limited experience with the physician practices. Um, they're, they're passed around freely and easily, so they often don't see the same person or provider again and again. And when that, when that phrase, the f- familiarity is the basis of all great diagnosis, right? I know who you are. And so if I see a behavior change or a new complaint, I have so much more context to evaluate that. So if I knew you were a very stoic patient and now you've, you've said something that indicates that you, you're experiencing a problem, I pay a lot of attention to that because I know you as a person. So this loss of continuity, it's actually quite costly when it comes to practicing good medicine. So we try to restore it with the connectivity. And uh, so far, it's been really successful because everybody has a cell phone. Most people have a laptop. Um, And as long as you make it easy around their technology, you can maintain that continuity. That's great. That's a, it's an interesting point, Dr. Carlin. I'm wondering, you know, it's great to be able to provide the continuity both emotionally, but I'm wondering in those situations where you have somebody who maybe is resistant to addressing a serious issue, you know, you mentioned behavioral health issues. We know that those can be notoriously difficult to address. Um, what Does that level of relationship with someone help you in terms of establishing some capacity to get them to see why something is to their benefit. I'm thinking of clients we've had who have been given the message by a healthcare provider and they just, they want to remain in their own stance of denial. Yeah. Again, Arden, that's a casualty of this sort of loss of continuity. In in our world, you know, there's a lot of continuity, a lot of familiarity. And and the byproduct of that, of course, is trust. And the, the basis of any conversation around substance abuse, misbehavior, um, anything that's, you know, sensitive or a source of shame. These are very tough conversations for a stranger to have with a patient. They're much easier when you've known each other for five, six, ten years. And I'm speaking to a patient as really someone they've known for a very long time. And, you know, in a lot of cases, we've experienced all kinds of other challenges, you know, children with, you know, coughs and colds and you know, grandparents who've had heart disease or whatever, but there's a long experience there that builds this basis of trust. So when the time comes for that conversation about, uh, I'm thinking of one patient I have who's, he's really struggled with bipolar disorder or manic depression and has been in denial for a long time. We finally made a a really decisive moment or a decisive uh, move in the right direction with some intensive therapy and hospitalization. 
But that never could have happened without that trust and the familiarity. And me as a physician, I'm, I'm old now, you know, I'm 20 years older than when I started. And mm-hmm. I, I say to him, you know, we've been at this a long time together. I know your family, they're paying a terrific price for this. And I also know how much you love your mm-hmm. family. So we've got to make a move here. And this isn't going to be about you or me. This is going to be about your kids and your spouse, your wife. And that, 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 that's a tough statement to make if you don't know someone well, right? But that was the moment that turned the relationship and it, it turned things from a very, very destructive direction to an infinitely more positive direction. It's great to hear. I guess one of my questions, and this is a tough one I'm sure to answer, but you know, when we think about the clients you serve and the clients our, ser- our firm serves, they're largely people with extensive financial means. And I guess one of the questions on an individual level, we know what the stats bear out globally, but on an individual level, does more money guarantee better health outcomes? Um, I would say in general, in general, more money guarantees a longer life. I'm not too sure about better health health outcomes. I'll tell you honestly, I've got a, a lot of very wealthy people who make a lot of bad decisions constantly about <laughs> their health. So I do see their resources called into play in the final decades of their life with private duty nursing and on-call physicians and uh, on, you know, almost an entire medical system infrastructure around these folks. Um, I think people with resources probably do better in that sense. I'm, I can definitely tell you that lots of resources does not come with lots of good judgment. And I think mm-hmm. you, you would probably endorse that to some degree. Um, I'll also tell you, though, that among wealthy people, there tends to be a little bit higher level of insight around their health. And at least an awareness that there are healthy behaviors and there are unhealthy behaviors. And they do tend to make an attempt on the healthy behaviors, probably more than the average person. They've certainly read more. Um, they, in, in many cases, to your point, they have the resources, for example, a personal trainer or a nutritionist consultant, or in some cases, just putting in a simple infrastructure in their very busy lives to comply with, say, taking their medication you know, um, or to comply with physical therapy. Those issues are very much acquired through money, which at a level that most of us don't have. But it's, it's actually, it's not a direct linear connection in my mind that more resources and more money equals better health. That hasn't been my experience uh, um, as an absolute rule to date, most certainly mm-hmm. not. Do you think more resources better care? Do you think you get better care if you have better resources? Um, in terms of not, I mean, not what I'm not at, what I'm asking is more. Do you think that there are providers who are more apt to enable, protect, pander to somebody with a lot of means and their self-diagnosis, which would interfere with their health? Yeah, so that's a great question, Diana. So, so there's a couple of things there. I deal with a lot of very conventional uh, office-based concierge physicians, and by and large, they're great. Um, they've made a they've made a big economic decision that Medicare is never going to pay them enough money to have a decent life and pay their bills. So they've 
carved up their practice onto a concierge side. In some cases, they preserve uh, a non-concierge side. But in all cases, they they figured out the economics of what they're doing has to change. And it it does. The uh, quick statistic, the average family practitioner has not received an increase in Medicare reimbursement or, or overall pay, let's say overall pay since 1994. And that's in absolute numbers. In other words, they're making the same actual dollar number in 2020 that they were making in 1994, with no adjustment for the erosive influence of inflation. This is, this is absolutely devastating what's happened to these folks. And it's why it's a big part of why our healthcare system at large is so dysfunctional. So let's leave that aside for the moment. Um, I've definitely met some, met some pandering physicians over the years. Um, they tend to be the exception though. Mostly I've met, I've met is very knowledgeable folks who've said, I, I can't send my kids to college. And I thought being a doctor, I, that was pretty much, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking that that, that assumption's not valid. So they've made they've made that change. I've seen sort of both sides of the coin with regard to, can you buy your way into better medicine? I think so. In a, certainly in a lot of big cities that are over, you know, the hospital systems are overwhelmed because the, the bulk of their patients are Medicare, Medicaid, and they, that doesn't pay a, a fraction of the money to, needed to really take care of them. So they will use their influence and contributions and philanthropy and research support to establish an informal relationship with a senior member of the hospital administrative staff. And that person can often facilitate care. Um, it's a bit of a trade-off. You know, they're parting with huge amounts of money for informal access. Um, it's not a, I think economically, it's, it's, it's a good thing for the hospital because it brings in millions of dollars to the hospital at a very low cost of service, if you will. So um, it's easy to say it's a bad thing. In the same breath, if you're the hospital administrator in Queens, New York, or even in Manhattan, and you want to keep the doors open, and 20 families are keeping you from bankruptcy, it probably makes sense to take care of those folks because they're a, they're a source of income you otherwise would never have through conventional payment mechanisms. Having said that, again, there's black and, black and white on everything. Um, I see good examples of that all the time. Really, really wonderful. Uh, and then I see things that aren't so nice, like um, pandering. Um, I see sometimes, and I, it's always a little nauseating when I do, when a, a high net worth person is being taken advantage of by a particular physician um, or a medical center or a medical group or a research, research lab. And they're being overpromised to, and it's it's an inappropriate relationship. I've definitely seen that. They tend to be um, overdiagnosed, overtreated, overimaged, and it's all, of course, to you know lock in the check for how that you know the that entry point was hoping to boost their revenues by doing more services, which are often are not required. So I do see that. It's an, I don't see it all. The, I, I don't see. I don't even see it often, but I've seen it enough to say that's a problem, and it's a recurrent problem in healthcare for high net worth families. So what would be the red flags? Um, too many tests, too much dependency, and inappropriate spending. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
I know of a particular story, I can't go into details obviously, but an individual physician recommended to a family that they have a private imaging unit in their home. And by that I mean a CT, MRI, ultrasound in their home. When, you know, seven minutes away, there was a private imaging center that was more than happy to do whatever images needed to be done at a very high level, backed up for by a radiologist, um, at a very modest and reasonable price. But this this particular physician said, "Oh no, you should you should have this in the basement." And that, I think that's wrong. I think that I think you that's pretty toxic actually, and and. Uh, um, it's something that surprised me that that was pretty egregious, right? And I see lots of minor versions of that pretty frequently. You know, there's a little bit of territorialism going on there among some of these docs that this is, a, a, in some cases, their primary source of income. And they are, they are anxious to pad the bill while shutting out other providers who might dilute their influence over the patient. Absolutely. We see that in clinical teams with psychiatric issues as well. Mm-hmm. I have a question that's in a different vein, which is, you know, we both, both our firms, I think, receive a fair amount of referrals from what I would consider non-clinical, non-medical referral sources, trust and estate attorneys, folks who do wealth management, people in family offices. I guess I have a two-part question. One is, what situations do they tend to bring to you, and are those the same as the ones they should be bringing to you? Are they coming to you at the right end of the process? <laughs> That's a good one. So there's, it sort of falls into two baskets. Um, the folks who, the folks that we love, are generally the wealth managers, trust and estate folks, who are ahead of the curve. They've been doing their reading. They understand what's going on in healthcare, and they're in a they're in a very trusted position with their client and they're making an honest recommendation like, you know, hey, we're getting older, you're traveling a lot. We should, you know, give these world clinic guys a call. So we, you know, if you if you insist on going down to Ecuador every winter for three weeks, let's at least have a team that can manage that. So we'll get that referral. Um, and, it, and it makes sense. It's very, it's very proactive. So we'd love it. Now, the flip side of that is we'll often get a call on a weekend late at night from, it could be an estate manager, sometimes it's actually security personnel, and we have a crisis somewhere, um, and it's a high stakes crisis, and there's been minimal to no planning, minimal to no response coordination, logistics, critical decision making, and they're they're basically hoping to transfer a bonfire to us. and so how do you physician. accept that bonfire? How do you take it on? <laughs> well, it depends. You know, you do a lot of information gathering. And, and just to be fair, um, I'm a boarded emergency physician. It's a, it's a practice of bonfires, right? Exactly. What I, yeah, what I'm looking for is, can I, get, can I get this person safe and better? And what are the obstacles between me and that outcome? And you gather a lot of information. But you quickly get a sense of, how did it happen? Why did it happen? And now what are the obstacles to creating a good outcome here? And sometimes the obstacles absolutely outweigh the opportunity. And you say, look, I, I can't help you. You, you, kind of, um, you kind of really goof this one up and I can't save you. And I can't save your patient. You, you put no thought, no planning into this. 
and it's so critical and you're so far away and you have no means of rescuing this person, I can't help you. I, I hate that call. Mm. Um, sometimes you get the bond, you know, someone's in real trouble, but there's been some effort at planning and then, you know, it's all hands on deck for 24 hours or so while we move this person from a temple in Cambodia to, you know, Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and you know my safe. son. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of crazy. The world is a very small place in many people's minds, but I assure you, it is a very big place with big distances mm-hmm. and a dearth of medical care in over most of it. So we want to think that stuff through, you know, before you, uh, you don't want to call me when things are on fire. You want to call me before you go. That's a great That makes line. total sense. Yeah. I guess in one of my thoughts related to kind of the times we're living in now in the middle of the pandemic, you know, based on what you said, you know, that there are some calls that you hate to make because somebody really has put themselves in an unsolvable situation. But I guess, you know, I'm thinking about so many families who feel helpless as they're watching a loved one go into a hospital, they can't be with them. I guess one of my questions to you, is there a role for advocacy from professionals like yourself or from family members during this pandemic, um, given sort of all the limitations that we're facing? Um, there, yes, I would. I heartily agree with you on that, Arden. There is a role for a- advocacy. I'll tell you, it's tough on the families because they're not—they're unfamiliar with the culture and the and the architecture, if you will, of the medical center. Of who's in command? You know, who are the generals? Who are the foot soldiers? Who's going to talk to you? Who's never going to talk to you? And that's tough if you're a layperson. It's very, very hard to get reliable information in an organized fashion. And uh, in my world, you know, we do a lot of physician-to-physician communication. It is much easier for two reasons. Um, When we call a physician, there is this professional courtesy. Of course, I'll call you back. I respect the fact that Mm -hmm. this is your patient. Um, The other part of it, too, is is just saying, hey, look, this um, this patient is really important to me. I know them well. Here's their medical information. What are you guys doing for them? And that instantly changes the dynamic from, you know, uh, a casual call to, I'm a colleague who wants to participate in his care, and I'm here to play. And you better respect that, because if this doesn't go well, or if I sense that we're off track here, I'm the guy who can pull the plug on this. And, you know, I'm the Mm -hmm. original patient-physician relationship. And so there's a professional respect there, a recognition that I'm part of the uh, dialogue, which a a regular family member, they'll have a a tough time getting to that level of influence around case communication that quickly. But advocacy is, you try your best. Um, And I'll tell you, honestly, even even from my perspective uh, as a physician and my partner's Sometimes we find a hospital or a medical center that doesn't want to participate or uh, they don't want to make this easy for us. And so we just try mm-hmm. harder, transfer the patient sometimes. Um, doesn't happen often, but you've got, to, you've got to be part of the conversation. And that's, you have to make it clear that you're willing, you're an active participant, not shy. Absolutely. We usually end our podcast with something to consider. 
And you have said so many this particular episode. I wonder if you have one left in your hip pocket that you would like our listeners to hear. What's the one thing you would really like people to consider? Sure. Um, two parts. Part one is the healthcare system as you knew it five years, 10 years ago is going away. It's overwhelmed. COVID, we think of COVID as a temporary crisis. I assure you it is an accurate reflection of what our healthcare system looks like in 10 years. We're only at the very beginning of a demographic tidal wave. And I mean tidal wave with a capital T and a capital W. Baby boomers are gonna live much longer than their parents. They're gonna, in some cases, they'll spend between 25 and 40 years in retirement consuming healthcare resources. So part one, you're gonna be looking at a system that's completely overwhelmed in the years ahead. It will be underfunded because how on earth can the government, which is the principal player, possibly afford to do this? And it'll be a game of evasion, broken promises, um, and grand political statements amounting to nothing. I'm sorry to say that, but that's what I've seen these last 20 years and I predicted this a long time ago. It's going to get a lot worse. So please accept that reality. It's coming from a good place. So here's what I want your listeners to know, which is this, plan accordingly. This is a really good time to get very serious about your lifespan. And by that, I mean your primary care and your prevention. You're looking at your own family history and saying, did my parents die of cancer, heart disease, stroke? And you want to respond accordingly now before those things manifest. And this is a conversation you want to have with your physician. I want to prevent disease. I'm willing to actively participate in the plan to make me fit, thin, at low risk for all of these diseases that have claimed my predecessors. This is the time to do it right now. Do not wait five or six years. There will be no primary care physicians to talk to in five or six years. Or if, if they're there, they won't be able to squeeze in your concerns in seven minutes. Okay? So this is the moment where you're going to get really savvy about prevention, lifespan sciences, basic practices to keep you alive for a long time. Because trust me, you're going to want to avoid the healthcare system as much as possible in the years ahead. Thank you. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I think no, it's, no, it's, it may not be the advice love? we want. <laughs> I, That's my I, I tough love, sorry. <laughs> I know it might be advice we don't want to hear, but it's what we need to hear. And I think it's, it's coming on the heels of a time where many of us are looking at our own behaviors, just kind of given what the world is facing. So I think it's very important. I think it's a great way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlin, for joining us sure. tonight. My pleasure, guys. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.